0: Well, good morning. Welcome to worship. It is good, like Trey said, to have a bit of a thaw out yesterday afternoon. I felt like spring had sprung a little early, but uh, I'm sure it'll get cold again. But it sure is nice to, to have a a thaw after the frozen uh, tundra that I feel like we were experiencing. I know was, all you Northerners are like, "Oh, it's nothing. It's not bad at all." But uh, I was I was miserable. So. Uh, Long, long cold week being cooped up in the house for for most of that time, so I pray that you were all able to stay safe and, and warm during all the inclement weather, and we didn't have services on Wednesdays, so I feel like I haven't seen you in a long time, and I've missed you, so I'm glad you're here today, and a lot of guests I've already gotten to speak to that are here today. It's just wonderful what God's doing in our church. Today we're going to continue our Built series going through Ephesians, we're going to finish Chapter 1 now, and next week, I'm so excited about we're having a joint worship service with our Swahili Baptist congregation, the the Swahili Baptist Church that meets in the chapel during this hour. We're going to combine for a service next week, and Pastor Mimba Mwene is going to share a word in Swahili through his daughter, who will translate... From Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, when we talked about it, he said, oh, I love Ephesians. I love it. So he's excited about bringing that word, and I'm excited about hearing it. Their choir's going to sing a song, and they're also going to sing with our choir. You don't want to miss this wonderful service celebrating how the nations have come to Nashville. These are refugees who are fleeing horrible situations in Africa who have come to our church now, and I'm excited about what the Lord's doing. So I've really enjoyed reading through Ephesians just this month already through the lens of the church. We're reading through Ephesians ecclesiologically, which means through the the church, the doctrine of what the church is overall, but more specifically through the lens of this church. Reading it through Woodmont Baptist Church, how does this tell us how Woodmont is designed to function. How are we built in the Holy Spirit to be the people of God? I hope that you're thinking and dreaming and praying about what kind of church we're going to be for the next 75 years of our long history. So let's stand this morning, if you're able to, in honor of God's Word as we read through Chapter 1, Ephesians, we're gonna finish it starting in verse 15, going through verse 23. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, And a revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So imagine the Apostle Paul here, who's writing this letter, this amazing letter to the church in Ephesus. And he's at the, the end of his life. He's at the end of his run here, and he's, he's chained up, he's, he's shackled in house arrests in this great city of Rome, awaiting his trial and probable execution. You know, this is after many decades of life experience, after long years of traveling and church planning and pastoring and discipling and evangelizing, all the work that Paul's done has culminated in this letter here. And he's carefully dictating this letter to his, his scribe who's, who's writing down these things because Paul's hands are, are probably bound at this point in his life. And he's, he's giving the, these instructions to the church, and all of a sudden, he bursts into spontaneous prayer. He, he begins to pray for the church in Ephesus, starting here in verse 15. He picks up the prayer later in chapter 3, verse 1, and then he breaks it off And then he picks it up again later in chapter 3, a beautiful prayer for the Ephesians. And and the scribe just keeps writing. As he's praying, the scribe's like, yeah, 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 keep going. And he's just writing down this prayer. It's what he captures here in the end of chapter 1 is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And what does he pray for the church? Does he ask God to, to help the church obtain something that they don't already have? Something that they need? Does, does he pray that the church could, could get something that would help them to do church better? Maybe God would send them a better preacher. Maybe God would send them a, a, a new Sunday school program. Maybe God would give them a, a shiny new gymnasium to play basketball in. That'd be fun. Maybe if the church could get more millennials, if they could only get some young adults to attend church, then they would really do well. Maybe if they could get more preschoolers and children and young families, that's what, that's what Paul should pray for them, right? Maybe, maybe Paul should, should pray for them to get more money, if they had more money to do ministry, or more volunteers, if only they had more volunteers to do the ministry of the church, then they'd really flourish and thrive as a church, right? But that's not at all what Paul prays for. In this section, he doesn't ask God to give them anything that they don't already have. What Paul's praying for here is that they would simply understand what is already theirs because of their faith in Christ Jesus. He prays that the, the people who were going to hear this letter would be filled with the knowledge of God's will together with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This is a prayer for understanding. At its core, this is a prayer for enlightenment. This is a prayer that they would understand the gifts and the riches that they already possess in Christ Jesus their Lord. As, as God's house that is built as, as God's dwelling place for, for God's people. As as the household of God, we as the church are built for a special kind of understanding that is of great importance. And this understanding is is not a mere intellectual exercise, is it? Did anyone here ever have a, a mom or dad say to them, Now, do you understand me? Is that understood, young man, young lady? Is that understood? I didn't ask if you heard me. I asked if you understood me. Because as parents realize, our kids may hear us, but they don't always understand us. There's a difference between understanding and hearing, isn't there? You know, understanding is not a, an intellectual exercise. It's, it's something that's more than just apprehending or hearing something. Real understanding must be entered into. Understanding must be engaged with through experience, right? You know, the, the great British author Rudyard Kipling once said, the first condition of understanding a foreign country is to smell it. I think think that's true. I think that's getting closer to what Paul is praying for here for the church. Not that they would simply know something, but that they would understand it. You know, you can read travel books about Tasmania, the little island just southeast of Australia. You can read all the books you want to. You can watch YouTube videos. You can get the Lonely Planet Guide to Tasmania. But until you've hiked the snowy trails around Cradle Mountain in the middle of July, and smelled the forest of Tasmania, until you've chopped wood outside your cabin in order to stoke your fire while fat wombats come waddling out of the bush, and and little patty melons come hopping around. If you don't know what those are, Google them, they're adorable. (laughs) They come hopping out of the woods while I was chopping wood in Tasmania and smelling the smells that come along with, with the Australian wildlife and landscape, until you've played cards with some locals and eaten the, the local pub fair there. Until you've had those kinds of experience and smelled all of that, then you really don't understand Tasmania, or Tassie as the locals call it. The same thing is true of understanding God and understanding God's ways. We must experience God in in visceral ways that transcend mere intellectual apprehension if we're going to understand him and understand his ways. When our Lord Jesus was teaching these eternal truths about God and about God's kingdom to the crowds that were following him, he didn't lay out theological treatises, right? He didn't give them the five points of his sermon. He didn't use charts about the end times and the the eschatology that he was explaining. He told them stories. He asked them questions. He engaged with the the hearts and the minds of the people who came to hear him. Because understanding the the truths of God and of his kingdom is is something deeper than, than the mere intellect. And his disciples didn't get it. They weren't used to this kind of teaching. The rabbis of his time used the charts and the figures and the tablets. They said, where are the charts, Jesus? What are your five points anyway? Why not just spell it out for the people? Let's look at Jesus' answer when they challenged him in this way. Matthew 13, it'll be on the screen. Verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, Jesus said, Because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear. Sounds like my own children sometimes. Nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. It says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, not their mind, understand with their heart, and turn, repent, and I would heal them. It's a matter of the heart, not the head." Jesus was trying to get his disciples and the crowds to see that this this kind of understanding cannot come from taking an executive course in systematic theology. That's not going to cut it. You won't gain this understanding from a a two-week intensive with all the leading biblical scholars from the Vanderbilt Divinity School or from Belmont or Lipscomb or Trevecca or Fisk or any institution of higher learning. Paul prays that the church would gain this understanding. How? By what means would they get this understanding? He says that they would get it through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of wisdom and revelation. You could hole up at the library at the Vanderbilt Divinity School for weeks of study and still not receive the understanding that Paul is praying for because it only comes through the Holy Spirit who reveals it to us. God gives us this understanding by the Spirit as a gift. It's a gift to those who are open whose hearts are ready to receive it, like the the fertile soil that Jesus talked about when the the parable of the sower who scattered the seed, only those hearts that are fertile ground for the seed of truth will actually bear that that seed in a way that brings it to flourish and to thrive and take root and bear fruit in their lives. And what's the goal of this understanding? What's the point? Is it some kind of secret knowledge that we can get so we can lord it over those who don't have this understanding? There's plenty of religions in this world that function like that. Scientology is one of them, where you you get these levels of of learning this kind of secret knowledge, and these poor plebeians who don't have this knowledge, you know, are, are less than somebody else. But that's not the point of Christianity, is it? The the point of this spiritual understanding that comes through revelation is to know God. It's to know God. That's the point. That's the goal of this understanding. Paul says so right here in verse 17. He prays that the Holy Spirit would give us revelation in the knowledge of Him, of God the knowledge of God, so we can know God. That's what this understanding is all about. So what does it matter if we know God? Why does Paul want the church, this isn't about individuals, remember this is about us as a community, why does he want us to know God together? Why would Paul pray that the Spirit would help us to know God? J.I. Packer, he's a Professor at a Canadian seminary. He's well into his upper 80s now. Incredible theologian. He wrote an amazing book in 1973 called Knowing God, almost 45 years ago. In the preface, he says The conviction behind the book is that the ignorance of God, ignorance both of his ways and of the practice of communion with him, This ignorance lies at the root of much of the church's weaknesses today. The church is weak because it doesn't know God. Ouch. That rings true today, doesn't it? Packer says that Christians, instead of knowing God intimately and being transformed by a growing relationship with him, instead have succumbed to the ways of this world. We've traded in true gospel hope for what the world sells us through advertising. Instead of shaping our communities into gospel identities, we are instead transformed by our communities. We're more often the product of our zip code than we are of God's ways and, and God's purposes. Packer says that because we don't know God, the church has now tended to downplay the important, crucial, vital, biblical themes of death, eternity, heaven, and hell, which are very real things. We tend to not think about the importance of the soul or the spiritual life, and and therefore the church is not only devoid of spiritual power that fills those who know God, but we're also irrelevant to the world around us. Think about it. If we don't don't hold out real hope, if we don't hold out real truth, if we don't hold out real salvation that is all-encompassing, then we're just another voice among many others in this busy culture around us. Knowing God gives the church the authority of the body of Christ to speak truth into a world that desperately needs truth. It gives us the authority to be light in a dark place. It gives us the authority to be a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. Knowing God in this sense that the Bible is talking about is, again, not a kind of knowledge about God, you know, Romans chapter 1 talks about how anyone can can know that God is great. Just stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and deny the greatness of the Creator. You can't do it. You stand at Rocky Mountain National Park and observe the majesty of, of the mountains, and you realize God is indeed great. Even the pagans see that and acknowledge it, but knowing God in the Bible is an actual, personal, two-way relationship, a personal love relationship with the triune God of the universe. We abide with Him and He abides with us, like the choir just sang, in a two-way, intimate, loving relationship. It's a growing love relationship that continues to develop and deepen throughout our lifetimes. When we first come to know God, that is called salvation, right? We're justified before God when we first come to know God through Jesus Christ. And then when we we increase in the knowledge of God, that's called sanctification. I hope that if you're a Christian here today, that you're growing in your relationship with God. You know Him better today than you did yesterday. That is a process that, that won't end until we know God perfectly. When we know God perfectly, that's called glorification, when we will reign with Him in glory as co-heirs of the promise. It's all about knowing God. Knowing God in a love relationship involves learning more about who He is, more about His ways, more about His purpose and, and His plans for the world. So so Paul prays for three things specifically in verses 18 and 19 here that are going to help the church to know God better. First, he prays that we would know the hope that he's called the church to bear out to the world. You know, last month as we walked through the book of Revelation together, we we talked a lot about how many Christians today have kind of abandoned the the real classic Christian hope. The the best that most Christians hope for today is that maybe one day I'll die and go to heaven. That'd be great. But what kind of hope is that? It, it leaves all the injustices, all the, that's wrong with this world, it leaves all that there. True Christian hope, robust, orthodox hope means that one day God's going to come back into our world and say, enough. Behold, I make all things new once again. He's going to restore everything that is broken back to himself He's going to fix all that is wrong with this world. That is our hope. It's revealed in the end times, just like Revelation talks about. We need to recover that strong sense of hope, and it's all made possible by His work on the cross and through His resurrection that secures our hope. It it means that everything sad is coming untrue. Samwise Gamgee says in The Lord of the Rings, everything sad is coming undone because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. Nancy Hogue was saying that she and John went to the Elvis Presley memorial concert at the Skirmerhorn. Was that last night, Friday night? And they, they played, I didn't know this song, but one of Elvis's favorite songs, Nancy said, his second favorite song besides How Great Thou Art was If I Can Dream. It was written a few days, 50 years ago when a few days after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968 at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. And in that song, he says, still I am sure that the answer is going to come somehow. If I can dream, then then it's going to come somehow. It's a song of hope, following this hope of a dream of a better day, a better time. And for Christians, we know that's coming through Jesus Christ in God's timing. The second thing that Paul prays for us is to know how much we mean to God, how precious we are to God. He says in verse 18 here that we, the saints, the holy ones of God, the church, the people of God, the household of God, the body of Christ, we are the riches of his glorious inheritance. Can you believe that? I mean, can you, can you really believe? buy into this idea that you and me, who are so prone to sin, let's be honest, who still bear so many marks of our former fallen ways of life, who still wrestle with our hurts, our habits, and our hang-ups every hour of every day, can we possibly be God's treasure? Can we possibly be God's inheritance? Are we really His portion? Are we His prize that He has claimed for Himself? This goes back to what we talked about two weeks ago, that are you a sinner or are you a saint? Well, the reality is that when God looks at you, if you're a believer, He he sees you through the blood of Christ. He has paid a great price to redeem you and make you His own. He sees you now as united with Christ. That means when God sees you, he sees Jesus. He sees you and Jesus the same. That sounds like blasphemy, but it's very biblical. You must understand that if we're going to act like fully redeemed, fully beloved, fully adopted children of God, then we must learn to see ourselves as God sees us, as precious, forgiven Beloved children, we're defined by our future, not by our past. God sees us moving forward, and the past is all wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. The the point of understanding this self-identity is that we would live up to this identity that God has for us, that we would see ourselves as God sees us and then act like it, actually play our part in God's redemptive purposes for our world. He has a role for us. When we live into that calling as the family of God, as the people of God, as the children of God, then we we learn to live in continuous joy. We flourish and we thrive because we're overcome with constant gratitude. Thanking God for getting our past, for cleansing us, and for bringing us into his special adopted family. Paul's prayer closes with a third aspect of knowing God and, and his ways. He asks that God would help us to understand his supernatural power. Nowhere is the power of God more on display than when it raised Christ Jesus up from the grave. Think about it. For for nearly three days, Satan and his minions were celebrating their victory over God. They had thwarted God's plans, they defeated the Son of God. He was dead, crucified, buried, laid in a tomb, sealed with a solid rock. The followers of Christ had been scattered in a diaspora of panic. They, they thought they'd lost their, their Savior, their Messiah, the anointed one who they'd given their lives to was dead, not sleeping, but cold and lonely in a tomb. But what they didn't realize is that this was all part of the plan. God's power was always in control. This wasn't a comeback when Jesus rose from the dead. It was always part of God's sovereign will. Even when it seemed like all hope had been lost, God remained on his throne. Because on Easter morning, the stone was indeed rolled away, and Jesus Christ got up, folded up his grave clothes, and walked right out of that tomb. At Simple Worship on Wednesday nights, Hunter's uh, introduced a, a new song to us called Shout Hosanna. I love these lyrics. It says, now let the lost be found forgiven. Death could not hold him down. He's risen. So let the saints cry out. We worship you. We worship you. The same power that rolled the stone away, the same power alive in us today. King Jesus, we call upon your name. No other name. Shout, Hosanna. Jesus, he saves. Shout, Hosanna. He rose from the grave. Come and lift him up. Hosanna. Man, it's powerful to sing those words together. The same power that rolled the stone away is the same power that's alive in us today. We have resurrection power flowing through our veins. This this notion of supernatural power is a real big deal to the Ephesians, man. There were all kinds of cultic practices that we know that were happening in Ephesus during this time. It's a a cosmopolitan city, and the citizens of Ephesus were always looking for some kind of supernatural power that would allow them to overcome the world. They were desperate to cheat life, to cheat time, to cheat death, to cheat their finances and their lot in life. So they looked for different powers that would allow them to do that. The the great temple of Artemis, one of the seven great wonders of the world, of the ancient world, employed cultic prostitutes 24-7 who were supposed to somehow manipulate the gods into bringing favor to whoever paid them for their services. Archaeologists have unearthed all kinds of other cultic temples all over Ephesus that were dedicated to other gods and goddesses. The Ephesians clearly were desperate to try to find a higher power, a greater power than than what they could see in this world. But when the word of Jesus Christ came to town, it flipped all these cults on their heads. People began to see the Spirit of God moving in power through His word that does not return void like Trey said. Acts 19 tells us this story. Verse 17, it'll be on the screens, and this, the the power of the living God, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had formerly practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them. I think this is hilarious. And found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Burned. Doesn't matter. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in power. The Ephesians, the new converts, traded in their expensive fake magic books For the truth, for the Word of God that always prevails mightily. The book of Acts goes on to tell us that the the people in Ephesus saw signs and wonders, and pretty soon the idol makers, the people who were employed in the cultic practices, were out of work. That economy was tanking because the Word of God had come to town. The power of God that raised Christ from the grave always prevails, And it's moving in us, God's people. And now Jesus sits on his throne, Paul says here at the end, and he's got his enemies as his footstool. Man, I love a good footstool. Our first piece of furniture my wife and I ever actually bought on our own was a couch. And we wanted the biggest, fluffiest couch we could find. And man, it had an ottoman that was about the size of a twin bed. It was a huge ottoman. And you could just sink back into that couch. You've seen it, Brad, that old brown couch. And and you could just put your legs up on it, and man, within a couple minutes, I'd be snoring. I'd be asleep, just like that. Huge footstool. This says here that the footstool of Jesus is made up of all the powers of Satan. All the enemy forces of God. All the evil structures and broken, sinful, uh, you know, systems in our world are subjected by God the Father under the feet of Jesus. It's a powerful image, isn't it? There's absolutely no authority, human or demonic or any other kind, anywhere on earth or in hell, that can compete with the authority of our Lord, Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And what's the point of of all this spiritual blessing and, and, and knowing God and His power? He closes us here by saying it's so that we can be the body of Christ. Paul ends his prayer here with a picture not only of Christ on His throne, but as functioning on His throne as the head of His body, which is us, the church. We are an extension of the brain that is Jesus, our Lord and Master, who now controls us, working redemption through us, the church. He's constantly filling us with His Holy Spirit, filling us with His power, filling us with His authority to go and carry out good works in His name. So I want to close this morning by doing the same thing Paul did for the Ephesians. I want to pray for you, for the church. I want to pray these things for our church family. You know, I I pray for our church every day as part of my, my quiet time. And I felt the need as I was writing this sermon to spend some time praying this morning for us specifically that we would have a deep spiritual understanding, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that God would reveal Himself more and more to us so that we could know Him intimately. I want to pray that we would be a a hopeful people who confidently bear out the hope of glory that we eagerly await. I want to pray that Woodmont would also embrace our identity as God's special portion, as his prize. And then finally, I want to pray that that we would be filled with his power that is never ending, never failing, never defeated. Let's pray now. Oh Lord, our God, you are indeed high and exalted, lifted up over all creation. God, you are the Sovereign Lord who controls every molecule of the cosmos. Nothing takes you by surprise, nothing happens without your authority, O God. And Now I pray for Woodmont Baptist Church. God, it's been an amazing privilege and blessing to be the pastor here. I pray that you would open our eyes to your Holy Spirit. May our hearts be the fertile ground that you desire to cultivate the seed of your word, of your truth. May you bear great fruit through us. May you change the world through this congregation, O oh God. May we have a spiritual understanding that comes from you. May you reveal yourself to us more and more so that we can know you intimately. Help us to cultivate our love relationship with you, oh God. Forgive us for neglecting our spiritual disciplines. Spur us on to pursue you, just as we would pursue our, our spouse, God, a dating relationship. Help us to pursue you like that. God, I pray that you would give us clear hope. Help us in the midst of a hopeless world when we hear about government shutdowns. We hear about violence. We hear about injustice. Oh God, help us to hold out the true gospel hope of Jesus Christ to a world that needs it so badly. Help us to be a light that cannot be hidden, a city on a hill that shines brightly for you, oh God. I pray also, Lord, that you would help us to understand that we are special. We are precious to you, We are your beloved children. We're like your bride that you have made beautiful and perfect and presented before your presence with great glory. Help us to understand that we are no longer sinners, but we are covered by the blood of Christ, and now our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Help us to live into that identity. And finally, God, I want to pray that we, as your people, would be filled with your power Forgive us for relying on our own abilities, our own weakness, our own feeble power, God. Help us to experience true surrender and abandon and submission to you so that your never-ending power would flow through us. The same power that rolled the stone away, we want to see it move in glory in this place, oh God. We know that can only happen when our hearts become open to you. So God, we pray now that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us enlightened hearts to understand you, to know you, and to love you more and more. We thank you for your word. We pray all this in your high and your holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. If, If you don't know God, if you've never come to know God for the first time through salvation, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All of this is a gift that's extended by grace, but it must be received by faith. Ephesians 2 says it's by grace that we're extended this gift of understanding, this gift of knowing God, but we have to step out in faith to take a hold of it. Maybe you've been reluctant to to take a hold of the gift, the free gift of salvation that God extends to you today. If that's you, I would encourage you to reach out in faith and accept that gift. Maybe you've just neglected spiritual disciplines. Maybe you haven't prayed in a long time. Maybe you haven't read your Bible. Maybe you don't really have a love relationship with God. Maybe you've neglected your first love. Maybe today you need to repent to return to Him, to find a a reading plan on our our website where you can get in the Word and develop a love relationship with God so you can know Him more and more. Maybe you're you're trying to do all this on your own and, and you don't have a church family to be a part of. Maybe you feel God telling you to step out in faith this morning and and join Woodmont Baptist Church as a member and, and, and pledge your membership here to give of your time, your talent, and your treasure to what God's doing in this place and through these people. Whatever it is that God's convicting you of this morning, I pray that you wouldn't leave this place until you've dealt with it. Let's stand now and sing. Open the eyes of my heart for our invitation. Make this your earnest prayer today. Ask God to enlighten the eyes of your heart, just like Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus.